0: His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We will be in Philippians chapter 3 tonight, our first shot at reviewing chapter 3. Somehow I suspect we're not going to review chapter 3 tonight and chapter 4 on Sunday not really all that, it's not really crushing to me to review chapter 4 because we were just in chapter 4 two weeks ago. So, um, But in any event we'll see how the Lord leads in this and how uh, the Colossians material comes together and just ask for the Lord's wisdom in that as we move from this series to the next. Alright, Philippians chapter 3 finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you repetition is a marvelous thing. Paul loved it, I love it, and uh, there it is. Alright, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness to, to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the blessing that we have to to study, to learn, to grow, And Father to uh, to undertake this review. We've learned so much in the last two years and you've been so faithful to open our eyes. Uh, We call upon that faithfulness yet again here tonight to bless our time of study. Uh, Father we uh, pray for Doug and others that can't be with us tonight with their health issues and their struggles. Uh, You know where they are and what they're dealing with and uh, you are just so faithful Father. We give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's take a few minutes for some Q&A questions, the microphones ready to go. Uh, I did not do more work on the one from last week. I do want to. Uh, what I want to do is go back to listen to the Life of Christ material and see how I taught that and that idea about forcing your way into the kingdom. I have been thinking though uh, related to uh, you realize when you're dealing with Israel and their stewardship, we, we confuse things frequently because our stewardship requires us to be saved that uh, you're, not, uh, you're not baptized into the body of Christ until you are saved. And so to be a steward in the church age requires salvation. That wasn't the case uh, for Israel, that uh, the high priest didn't have to be saved. No one had, you just had to be racially Jewish. And, uh, and so for the folks that are forcing their way into it, you could think of uh, things like the Pharisees and the scribes and people that were uh, abusing their religious authority and dominating different things. And, uh, and, and I think that's kind of what's in view there when you talk about forcing your way into the, into the kingdom. Because it does talk about from the prophets all the way until John and then since John from the ministry of John the Baptist up to the incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ. It was that present time where folks were trying to force their way in. And that's, uh, that was the stress on that. But I do want to listen to those MP3s again and remind my thinking on that. So uh, I'll try to get that done. While I'm out of town, how about that? Maybe we'll have an answer for this in a couple of weeks. So, uh, other questions for tonight? Any new business? Randy's usually good for one. No, all right. Are you ready for Sunday? Yes, sir. Next Sunday. Yes. Sir. All right. Okay. Well, then, if there are no questions, we'll just go to Philippians chapter three. How about that? All right. Chapter 3, breaking it down, really you get two chapters of preliminaries, two chapters of introductory material when he says, finally my brethren, it's, it's not a conclusion it's just that he's, he's lingered so long before he gets to his main topic. That uh, chapter 3 is the main topic. Chapter 3 begins Paul's main address to the Philippians and it starts here in 3.1 and it takes us all the way through chapter 4 and verse 9. With all the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy then exhort the Philippians to joyfully keep on, pressing onward and upward. And that's what it's about, to rejoice, to keep on rejoicing, to rejoice some more. Onward and upward. This is the chapter that reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. This is the chapter that reminds us to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. This is the chapter that anticipates the rapture of the church and Paul dreams that he could be uh, living in the rapture generation. And, uh, and these issues that are here. The main address begins with rejoice and beware. I think that's interesting because you get the rejoicing in verse 1 and then beware. And we got a triple re- uh, beware in verse 2. Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. And there's a triple beware there. So the main address begins with rejoice and beware, and then stresses the spiritual reality of our sign and seal. And um, we'll talk about this tonight because I'm going to be reviewing basically verses one and s- one through six this evening, uh, for we are the true circumcision when it says, "Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, so we'll be dealing with that. Verses uh, 7-12 through after summarizing his impressive credentials Paul recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement. He uh, gives a little bit of a bio here and he talks about his credentials. And if anyone can boast in the flesh it will be Paul with the best education, the best uh, degree, the best credentials. And he says all of that is is garbage. All of that is is refuse or is uh, feces. Just get rid of it. Flush it. It's not worth looking at anymore. And uh, when you count things as loss that other people count as profit, well then you're dealing with a disconnect. You're dealing with a perspective that we, in divine viewpoint, uh, shaped by the Word of God, we look at things in a certain way and the world looks at it just the opposite. The world thinks we're we're crazy for the way that we look at things. So we'll deal with that in verses 7-12. through Probably that will end up being our Sunday morning message unless I really jump on a horse here tonight. This humble attitude equips all of us to keep pressing on the upward way, verses 13 through 16. So the third section of this chapter is 13 through 16 for, uh, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That uh, we're, we're reaching forward, we're always reaching forward. And we never retire. We never stop and say, okay I've learned enough, I have enough doctrine, I know enough. Uh, you know, We never retire. If we stop advancing then we are out of the will of God. And uh, and that becomes the the admonishment there. The chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And um, that's verses 17 and following. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Paul and Timothy, they set the right example. There are other leaders among them that are setting the right example. They can follow those guys. They can follow uh, Epaphroditus. They can follow other faithful men and the examples they set. But be uh, be on guard against these enemies. Many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And they could be church members. <laughs> Don't lose sight of that. That the, the biggest obstacle we have are not the uh, um, J. Vernon McGee was talking years ago about he wasn't worried about the, the honky-tonks on Saturday nights, he was worried about the, the churches on Sunday mornings. That, uh, that's where the wolves sneak in and that's where uh, you get these supposedly religious people but they're so worldly minded and it poisons the flock with that kind of an attitude. And so they're described here, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so in this congregation as we're growing together and praying for one another and, and blessing one another, it, when we do observe a brother or a sister and we, uh, it comes pretty clear that they're not heavenly minded, they're earthly minded and they're just fixated on these earthly things, well that's something we address. That's something uh, the shepherd addresses, the deacons address, but really the membership at large. We, we serve to encourage one another and admonish one another related to these things. And uh, always a useful reminder there. All right. So rejoice in the Lord. It's the heading we give for these first six verses. Rejoice in the Lord. Before the travel plans interruption, we dealt with that in chapter two, Paul had shared his own joy and exhorted the Philippians to rejoice with him. So we've already encountered rejoice several times in this epistle and we're going to get it several more times. Uh, Really some people call the book of Philippians the book of rejoicing and that that makes sense because it shows up so many times. But in, uh, you remember in 118 when he had shared his joy, uh, he says in this I rejoice, yes I will rejoice. And then he shares his joy with them in 217. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. See, Our our faith is communicative. Our faith is supposed to be disseminated and shared and fellowshipped in and all that. The world tells us to, to, it's personal, keep that to yourself, don't tell me about it. Well, let me tell you, I can't. I mean, I've got to get it out there. I'm commanded to get it out there. I'm commanded to, for those that have capacity to share it, then they can fellowship in it. And for those who don't, those that are walking in darkness, then that becomes the gospel testimony that they're missing out. (laughs) They don't have the joy that we have in the body of Christ. So we're supposed to share these things. Share your joy with me. And he wanted them to, uh, he was going to share with them and he wanted them to share with him. You too I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So don't just keep it to yourself, share it. How do you rejoice with those who rejoice if they don't share what you're rejoicing about? All right. So he returns to that imperative again and he's going to do so again and again. He has no issue with repetition, he loves repetition. In 4.4 it's rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. So he has no problem saying it again and again. Here he points out that uh, actually it's no skin off his nose, he can repeat it as many times uh, as, as he wants to in this epistle and every time it's going to be a blessing for them. Remember the phrase, in the Lord? Well, we had it in hoping in the Lord in chapter 2. We've got rejoicing in the Lord here in chapter 3. Subjecting personal enjoyment to the grace appreciation perspective of Jesus Christ. That's how you rejoice in the Lord. You don't rejoice in your testing. You don't rejoice in your problems. You don't rejoice in, in whatever the affliction is that you're enduring. But you're rejoicing in the Lord. That through the circumstances, through the testing, the Lord is drawing closer than ever before. That you've got a fellowship with Jesus Christ in ways you couldn't have without the affliction, without the hard testing. Subjecting personal enjoyment to the grace appreciation perspective of Jesus Christ. You know, what is it that you find joy in? What triggers your joy? It's like what triggers your humor? What are the things you laugh at? See, and some of us have unique senses of humor and we laugh at things that normal people don't laugh at. That's fine. Personalities are different. But in addition to what you find humorous, what do you find joyous? What do you find that just produces a, a happiness, see? And uh, as we had one tonight in our prayer meeting in particular that just sparked such a joy. And, uh, and, and that's what we, we deal with. Well, it should be with the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, if, when you catch yourself having joy in something Jesus doesn't have joy in, that's, that's wrong, okay? That's a huge problem. That means that you have an attitude different from His attitude and you're the one that needs to adjust in, uh, in the attitude adjustment of coming back to His way of thinking. This blessing requires us to be in fellowship, obviously. How are you going to rejoice without uh, being in fellowship? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So if you're carnal and the Spirit is not producing any joy for you, then uh, forget about obeying the imperative to uh, to rejoice in the Lord. Blessing requires us to be occupied with Christ, abiding in the Word of God. And you might remember, we discussed this, right? Because the Holy Spirit is one member of Trinity, Jesus Christ is one member of Trinity, and that they're not purely synonymous. So if I'm in fellowship, that means I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That means I've confessed my sins, right? We get that, 1 John one nine, We confess our sins, we're restored to fellowship, so I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Now not only am I filled with the Holy Spirit, I also want to be occupied with Christ. I want to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so it really requires both, to be in fellowship, that's the Holy Spirit, and then to be occupied with Christ, abiding in the Word of God. I would submit that if you're not abiding in the Word of God, your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. Because He's the personal Word and His, the Bible is His written Word. And uh, that's the, the aspect of it there. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 You know, if you're occupied with Christ, that means you're walking in love. Notice this, if you're abiding in the Word of God, what, is, what does love do? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with the truth. All right. Repetition is a protection, not a problem. <laughs> Repetition is a protection, not a problem. It's uh, always a safeguard to go ahead and review it again. Go ahead and review it again. Did you know, if you were with us this morning, uh, the Bible mentions that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Did you know that? Do you know how many times the Old Testament tells us that? And we looked at every last one of them this morning. It was fun. We started in Exodus, went to Numbers, we, went to, we, we ended up in places like, like Nehemiah and, and Joel. And, but God says nine different times throughout the Old Testament that He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's, uh, that's important. If, if God felt that it was necessary to repeat Himself nine times, then I feel like I should probably pay attention to that. And, uh, and understand that when He is slow to anger that that's, uh, that's His graciousness at work and His patience because He doesn't want to afflict the judgment. He wants us to repent. So He doesn't have to afflict the, uh, the judgment. Repetition is a protection, not a problem. And we've got the verses here. Marvelous verses for repetition. In fact, some of these may even uh, find their way into a, an ordination message coming up. Romans fifteen fifteen. I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. So to remind you again. He, he's writing them things they already know. But he doesn't mind reminding them again concerning these things. Second Peter 1, 12-15 Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things. And Peter was one, you talk about a knucklehead. This is, Peter was a guy that needed to hear it himself repeatedly over and over again. And so he adopted that in his teaching ministry. Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. (laughs) Isn't that great? Peter figured that was his mission while he was here on earth. That his purpose as long as he was still in this earthly body to keep reminding them of these things. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. If he does his job well they can't forget it because he's just going to pound it into them, pound it into them, pound it into them. Okay. All right. You know you think about Peter and the Lord promised him that he was going to get old and they were going to walk him around and take him somewhere he didn't want to go and all right, Isaiah 28. In the Old Testament. And the thing about this kind of repetition is um, uh, people will mock it. And they feel like it's beneath them. They feel like it's uh, it's uh, not appropriate. Especially when you're in such apostasy that even your priests and your prophets are useless. What are they doing? They're all drunk. They don't, you know, they're not feeding the flock. And um, you can spot these guys, the proud drunkards of Ephraim. And, and um, in verse 7, "...these also reel from wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment." For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. (laughs) Isn't that great? All right. But then in that context, in that context, see, it's curious because the teachers are useless, but the hearers, they're actually okay with it, right? Because they're not really all that jazzed about learning anyway. So if the priest is all schnockered, then that's that's all right. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk? Those just taken from the breast? And actually he's asking this as a rhetorical question but it kind of answers itself. The children, you may come to a point where it's only the children that have enough humility to actually learn something from the Word of God. That are actually uh, not so uh, absorbed by the things of this world that, uh, that they'll actually listen to the Bible and learn things and get saved and, and have the humility to grow. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Now those are translations that convey the blessings of repetition. They're translations that, that convey how we teach, what our style is. And that um, we do teach order on order, verse by verse, word by word. We exegete from the original language. Line on line, a little here, a little there. We don't try to teach the whole Bible in one hour, we're going to spend the rest of our lives going through the whole counsel of the Word of God but we're going to get it systematically through the various passages of of our Bible. So that's the translation and that's the sense of what this is about. The actual Hebrew words though are gibberish, they're like baby talk, right? The actual Hebrew words are just like la 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 la, right? And, and so the kind of thing that a, that a little kid would say, a little toddler would say when he's just learning how to speak. And uh, so when he voices that he then says indeed he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Um, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose but they would not listen. And prophetically this gets fulfilled at the beginning of the church age. This gets fulfilled when at the time of Israel's maximum apostasy they've crucified the Christ, they've rejected the kingdom, they've said His blood be on, on us and on our children forever. And so God says, alright. And then He starts speaking to them in, with Gentile languages. He, he, he gives tongues at Pentecost and, and starts to, uh, to warn them that, hey, their national destruction is now, is now pending. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, so that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the nation was removed from uh, existence until the 20th century. Alright. Repetition is marvelous. It's a protection, not a problem. Deuteronomy 6, 1-9. through 9. This is such a useful uh, concept, I should probably repeat it Sunday morning. Deuteronomy 6, 1-9 through 9. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's why Scripture memory is so important. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when? How many times? When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Repeated opportunities throughout the day. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You know, stick them on your refrigerator magnets. <laughs> stick them on your sh- mirror when you're shaving or just find little verses in different places that you're trying to uh, trying to memorize. Remember, you need to memorize Scripture. And we'll be having this uh, project over the summer when we get our Colossians memory books. Some vocabulary for safeguards. Uh, not a problem means... Uh, Yeah, no trouble, not lazy. Beware, beware, beware. The command to beware is repeated three times and the objects, watch out for the KKK. Remember this? Was it corny enough that you couldn't forget it? Alright, that was my purpose. Alright, every word here, dog, begins with K. Evildoers begins with K. Uh, Circumcision uh, begins with K the kappa in the Greek, okay? And so um, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation. I like the idea of beware. Uh, Dogs, evil workers, mutilation, they all begin with the Greek letter kappa. They're all descriptive of Jewish arrogance. These terms invert typical Jewish bows so as to highlight the spiritual realities. Not only are they easy to remember because it's KKK but they're also so insulting. They're also flipping it around backwards because Jews would consider the Gentiles to be the dogs. They would view themselves as being the, the chosen people and the great ones and the, the, the better ones and, and it's the Gentiles that are the dogs and yet uh, when he says beware the dogs he's throwing it right back at him and says who's the dog now? You guys are the dogs. Kunas, accusative ma- masculine plural from kuon. the word for dog is kuon. Evil workers. these are the kakus ergatas. It's an accusative masculine plural again of "kakos for evil, and then Ergates would be a worker, a worker of evil. Like, think of it like a, a worker of gold, a worker of silver, a worker of uh, iron, a worker of you know some kind of a smith of some kind of material. These guys are workers of evil. And uh, so much so that they, they shape it and they fashion it, they, they use it. They are workers of evil. And then mutilation. This is not the normal word for circumcision by the way. And um, it's curious the way that he changes the term, mutilation, instead of circumcision. Again, it's an attack. They think they're so proud of themselves of being the chosen people and circumcision is the sign of their covenants, the sign of their being chosen. And uh, so clearly it sets them apart from the Gentiles around them, the uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, but when he changes uh, peritame to katatame, um, when, he, when he swaps out the, the, the kata preposition in exchange of the peri preposition, uh he's really making uh kind of a joke out of it using the the wordplay to uh, to stick in their mind. There's a similar thing that Diogenes uses uh that did a swapped out kata for Perry in uh in an example there. If I remember what that one is. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And so this is where he uh he talks about the diatribe, the diatribane And then the kata tree bane. I'd forgotten about that. See, this is why repetition is so necessary. So you got the diatribe and then you got the he he just puts them side by side there, the the dia tree bane with the kata tree bane. And so uh, talking about uh, his contemporaries. He was great at pouring scorn on his contemporaries. The school of Euclides he called bilious and Plato's lectures waste of time. And so the, the lectures or the diatribes but he called the diatribes katatribes. Uh, so instead of lectures they were just time wasters. Waste of times. So did you come here tonight for a lecture or did you come here tonight for a waste of time? And that's uh, either a, a diatribe or a katatribe. Anyway. Goes on. The performances of the Dionysia were great peep shows for fools. And uh, he, he insulted everybody. This, uh, this guy was something else. All right. Well, enough of that. So Paul's doing the same thing. He's doing the same kind of joke. The, the normal word for circumcision is, is peritame. And it's one that he'll use in the very next verse. Because you and I in the body of Christ, we, we're the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision when it comes down to the metaphor and the reality of things. Um... But when he switches it to the katatame in, in verse 2, he's doing that to make a point. He's, first of all, he's got a third K in there, which you've got to have the alliteration going if you're going to have dogs and evil workers and, and mutilators. Um, and then he, he he's throws it at, right at them as a, as a matter of fact, okay, you're circumcising your boys. Does that mean you're, you're obeying the law? Or are you just mutilating your boys because your, your walk is not a walk that pleases the Lord? You've got this external religion and no, no reality. Of course, Jews viewed dogs as unclean and worthless scavengers. We get that. Philistines and Arameans, likewise. And you didn't have to be Jewish to not like dogs. So many of the Semitic people around them shared the same, uh, the same uh, attitude against the. Uh, remember when. Uh, David was going up against Goliath. What did Goliath call him? He said, am I a dog? Did you come to me with a stick? You know? Likewise the Arameans uh, spoke uh, disfavorably about dogs in 2 Kings 8.13. Religious legalistic Jews gave this pejorative label to Gentiles and unobservant Jews. Yet Jesus showed grace to one dog for her faith. Uh, that remember that Syrophoenician woman? She said, "Okay, I'm just a dog. I'm looking for t- some table scraps here," and uh, and Jesus was like, "Wow," and impressed by her faith. Paul, Peter, and John were all negative to dogs. Philippians three two, Second Peter two twenty two, Revelation twenty two uh, fifteen. This was fun to teach, you know, and 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 surprisingly, I didn't the church didn't blow up or have a big church split or whatever because we got a lot of dog, lo- dog lovers in, uh, in the church. And thankfully you find out who's got the grace or not. But hey, I didn't write it. I just read it. It says beware the dogs. So that's, that's what it is. Alright. Now these warnings are curious to me because you might remember there was no synagogue in Philippi. Unlike Thessalonica, unlike other places Paul traveled where he encountered uh, synagogues and would deal with Jewish people, in Philippi there was no synagogue. and They went down to the riverside and they found some believers praying down there, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. So this warning against the, the, the Jews, all three of these are Jewish warnings, um, this triple warning serves to watch out against such religious legalism from even beginning. From even beginning. When, when the Jews do start creeping into Philippi, when they are allowed to return, remember uh, Caesar had expelled all the Jews from Rome and evidently that also included the Roman colonies such as Philippi. So when the Jews start to come back into these locations, Paul's saying don't let their legalistic attitude start to uh, rub off on you and start to ruin the grace ministry that they have going there. Otherwise <laughs> the Philippians could turn out to be just like the Galatians. And they could end up with the same uh, weaknesses and struggles that the Galatians were dealing with. All right. We are the circumcision, even as Christ is the Passover. Here's a fun metaphor. All right. So beware of the false circumcision because we are the true circumcision. We are the circumcision. Well, what does that mean? How can I be a circumcision? And what's the point of this? Okay. Well, remember. that circumcision served to mark the Jewish people as belonging to God. That it was the mark of their covenant. It was the sign and the seal of their uh, covenant relationship with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5-7 is a similar metaphor. It's Passover though, but still, it still it shows how a person can be something because of what that thing represents. 1 Corinthians 5-7 Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Okay, Now that verse has nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight. I'm just giving it as an example. That Christ is our Passover. Right? That's what it says. Christ is our Passover. So we have an Old Testament concept that is now personified in Jesus. Okay? And that's that's the easy one to understand. I think we all get that. The way that He died on the cross on Nisan 14, the way that He was selected on Nisan 10, the way that He fulfilled all of the typology related to Passover. So when we say Christ our Passover, that's the easy one. It takes an Old Testament concept, personifies it in Jesus, and we can learn the doctrine. Right? Circumcision is something else. What's the doctrine of circumcision about? And then how does that apply to us? What is it that makes the body of Christ us? You and me, Austin Bible Church, born again believers in the church age, what is it that makes us the circumcision? Right? That's not as self-evident as Christ our Passover. Much easier to preach Christ our Passover <laughs> than the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, the true circumcision. Alright. This is what we dealt with. We don't have a Passover ritual, but Israel did. Christ is our Passover in the sense that the spiritual realities of their Passover are our realities in Christ. Remember that? So they were getting redeemed out of Egypt, they had to slaughter the animal, they had to smear the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, and then when He saw the blood then He would pass over their sins. That was the ritual. We have the reality in Jesus. Jesus was, was crucified. When we believe in Christ that's the application of the blood to our account. And so when He sees the blood He passes over our sins are forgiven. That's the easy thing. We don't have a circumcision ritual, but Israel did. It was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 and it was required of all Jewish males on their eighth day, on the eighth day of birth. So, um, which, you know, basically results in circumcisions happen seven days a week. That every child that was born on Thursday, right, because eight days later would be the following, no I'm sorry, every child born on Friday eight days later would be the following Saturday which is the Sabbath. Uh-oh. What is Friday's child? Tuesday child is full of grace, Wednesday child is, it doesn't matter, I'll look it up later. But so Friday's child, the male Hebrew child born on Friday is slated to be circumcised the following Saturday. And so that becomes, um, Jesus actually uses this teaching to address the, the Pharisees. He says, well, You guys break the Sabbath every Saturday. You know, are you working or not working? And, uh, and, and that was a consideration. They said, Hmm, you know, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but we've got to circumcise these boys that were born eight days ago. And this is the thing. So they worked it out, they, they debated, they discussed it, and they, and they came to a, a marvelous conclusion that if you're obeying God's command, you're not violating the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, bingo, this is what I'm doing. I'm obeying God's command. I'm healing, I'm raising the dead, I'm, I'm restoring the, and all these things. So uh, if, if you guys aren't Sabbath breakers, I'm not a Sabbath breaker. All right. Now, we are the circumcision ritual in the sense that the spiritual realities of our sign and seal are are evident in our spiritual service before God. The spiritual realities of our sign and seal. So circumcision is described as a sign that they belong to the Lord in the Old Testament. And also circumcision is a seal. is described as a seal of Mosaic Covenant. Both the sign language and the seal language are found related to Circumcision. We have sign and seal functions in the church age being uh, belonging to uh, the Lord. Worship in the Holy Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. These are the things that stand out as our sign and our seal. It's in this capacity that we are the true circumcision. The spiritual realities of our sign and seal are evident in our spiritual service before God. And this is kind of neat. And I remember teaching this and I remember um, we even had some puzzles back then and I don't know that I ever solved them. Uh, the idea that, so circumcision is a sign of the covenant. You talk about a, a not a very visible sign, <laughs> you know? It's rather hidden. It's not really on public display. Uh, so, So why Why do you have a sign that only you pretty much see on a daily basis, right? Or your wife. But the the whole idea is it's not a sign that the whole world is looking at. Okay? Same thing with us. And yet we have a public display of our ministry in these things. All right. If any Old Testament saint or New Testament saint could boast in the flesh it would be Saul of Tarsus. You talk about someone that could brag about everything he had going for him. He could absolutely do it. All right. so we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is our blessing, putting no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. All right so what is it that you bank on? What is it that you um that you uh you know what's your silver lining or what's your what's your uh confidence? You know what is it that you've got going for you and you say all right I've got this. And so you don't fear, you don't doubt, you don't struggle with with uh with your marriage or with your career or with your with anything, right? What is it that you have your confidence in? It better be the Lord. It better be uh the uh the position that we have in Christ, anything else is a a false confidence. Anything else is a a fleshly boast. And he says don't do it. And then then he uses himself to do it. He uses himself to illustrate why it's a waste of time for you and me to even go down this road. Okay? And so, uh, which is kind of a a logical position that, uh, you know, Paul basically says, well I'm better than any of you So if I can't boast in the flesh, you guys don't stand a chance. (laughs) So don't even start. Don't even start. And, uh, well, okay, that makes sense. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And so then he lays out his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. What else needs to be said? they were the best, the cream of the crop right there. no one would outlaw the Pharisees as lawkeepers, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, he went the extra mile, the extra multiple miles. he walked all the way to Damascus to out Pharisee the Pharisees, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. You know when a legalist has to prove to themselves that they're really better than everybody else, you start to wonder. Is that really a confidence or is that does that betray your admission that you don't really have a confidence you know if if you think your legalism has merit before God then why are you working so hard you you talking yourself into this a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless so I'm sure he had a shortcoming or two, but no one else knew about it, so it was good. He covered his tracks and uh, no one could level an accusation against him. So that counts, right? No one saw me, he can't prove anything. Is that the Burt Simpson line? I don't I've, I've never seen, I've just seen clips. I didn't do it, you didn't see me do it, you can't prove anything. That's what Paul's saying here as to the righteousness in the law found blameless and then he throws it all away because he says you know what whatever things were gained to me those things i have counted as loss for the sake of christ in human terms people would have that in the black numbers and paul just recolors them with red numbers and says no these are uh, this is a loss this is uh, this is not to my credit this is a loss all right, so boasting. Circumcised the eighth day, he was born into an observant home. Now, can he really claim credit for this? Well, his parents did it to him, right? But it does show that he was born in an observant home, that from the time he was breathing air, he was, he was following the, the uh, requirements of the law. Nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Really, it's a threefold expression of, of, of a, a superlative Jewish character that, uh, that he is locked in on, on all things pertaining to his specific heritage, including his tribe, including um, uh, everything else that's connected with that. Not only is he of the tribe of Benjamin, what's the name that he carries? Right? Saul. That's the name of the first king of Israel. King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. So he comes from the same name as that first king, the guy that preceded David The same tribe, the same name, called Saul, and uh, really proud of his, uh, he could out Jew any other Jew. All right, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the nation of Israel. Isn't that curious? The unified nation of Israel didn't even exist in Paul's day, but it was prophesied, it was promised, it's coming back. The unified nation of Israel only existed historically under Saul, David, and Solomon. After that it got split. And ten tribes to the north called themselves Israel, two tribes to the south called themselves Judah. They did not have a unified nation of Israel since that split, since the the death of Solomon. And yet Paul considered himself here uh, of the nation of Israel. It is one nation and it is uh, promised to be restored eschatologically under the new covenant. Here Paul uses genos rather than ethnos. This is kind of fun too when you study uh, uh, ethnicity or you study genealogy or you study different expressions. Genos speaks of a kind and ethnos speaks of a people group and uh, the Jews remain the chosen race but they're presently without a nation. They're a nation but they're not, they don't have a nation and uh, yet they're promised that they will in the future. tribe of Benjamin supplied Israel's first king. It was promised prophetically to supply ravenous wolves. You know, isn't that curious that the prophecy regarding um, Benjamin that that, uh, Israel letters in Genesis 49 is that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And that's good. You want to have, if if there's going to be a ravenous wolf around, you want it to be your ravenous wolf. (laughs) You know? Genesis 49, 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the spoil. So if you're going to have a mad dog around, just make sure he's on yours like Mad Dog Mattis. You know, I'm glad he's on our side. I want Mad Dog Mattis on our side. And uh, that's exactly what you want, right? They asked him what keeps him up at night. He says, nothing keeps me up at night. I keep other people up at night. And uh, that's, that's the right attitude you want to have. All right. Well, probably the Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is the most famous ravenous wolf of of uh, Benjamin. Because look what he was doing in the early church. Look what he was doing when he was um, persecuting the church, casting his vote to uh, uh, at the death of Stephen. Stephen is uh, stoned to death at the end of chapter Acts chapter seven, and you'll note. How chapter eight begins. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Remember, they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. What a what a position of honor! They honored him to uh, hold their robes while they went and murdered Stephen. chapter 9 and verse 1, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to uh, go to the synagogue of Damascus. This is completely illegal under Roman law. He's actually going to cross the boundaries from one Roman province to another Roman province. He's going to go into the territory of a governor, there's a Roman governor there in in Damascus. And he's going to what? Kidnap some folks and murder some folks or drag them back to Jerusalem? That's uh yeah, talk about Dog the Bounty Hunter. That's not legal in Roman in Roman law. But the ravenous wolf doesn't care. Benjamin proved to be the only tribe loyal to the house of David. So yeah, they can be ravenous but they can also be loyal. Alright. And then Hebrew of the Hebrews has superlative expressions like Song of Songs. Um, it's a superlative expression but also a linguistic expression identifying native Hebrew speakers in contrast to the broader Hellenistic Jewish population. So he was born in Tarsus but he was actually raised in Jerusalem. And he was cultural, although he has very polished Greek and he's not, he's not a rookie at writing Greek by any stretch but he is uh, he's, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He is, uh, his accent is definitely uh, Hebraic rather than Hellenistic. Remember in Acts 6-1 there was the, the dispute between the widows and that the Hellenistic widows were being uh, overlooked and that the native Hebrew widows were being uh, showing having favoritism. They were actually getting benefits that the Hellenistic uh, Jewish widows were not receiving. So Paul definitely fell on the side of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, falling on the Hebraistic side of Jewish culture. As to the law of Pharisee, the pinnacle of self-made sanctimony. You know, to be even be a Pharisee, to be a voting member of the Sanhedrin, all the hoops he had to jump through and all the things he had to satisfy, and he was actually exceeding beyond his peers, beyond his contemporaries. He was uh, making rank faster than his uh, classmates were making rank and different things there, which puzzles us too, because you can't be, under their law, you can't be a voting member without uh, being married. That he had to be a married man at the age of 30, uh, to be a voting member of the Sanhedrin. So that kind of gives us a clue as to Paul's background uh, before he named the name of Christ and was ushered into the church age. Was, so then was he widowed? Was he divorced? What happened? I suspect that when he named the name of Christ and became uh, an apostle of the church that uh, that his wife had full Sanhedrin sanction to, to strip all of his property and take it and and uh, and all the rest. Persecutor of the church, the pinnacle of self-made acrimony. Pinnacle of self-made testimony. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Self-made testimony. Blameless is not perfected. That's a big difference. Satan, the sealer of perfection, was blameless until he fell. Yeah, we had a lot of points on this. All right, so that's verses 1 through 6. Then we have profit and loss statements in verses uh, 7 and following. Profit and loss statements. I've got to get switched slideshows. Let's see. I had all of these slideshows on my desktop and then I decided it was too cluttered so I deleted them all. But I can restore them. Here we go. Because it's not really deleted. It's just sitting in a recycle bin. Alright. Profit and loss statements. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. So here's our profit and loss statement. Get back through this. Everything that was an actual gain for Paul is re-reckoned re-reckoned into the loss category. And so uh, you've got your ledger, you've got the things that you count as pluses or minuses, right? You do the same thing in decision making, you kind of say, well, you know, what do, I, do I do this? Here's the pros and cons. And so you list them out, your pluses and your minuses, and then you, you justify what you wanted to do anyway in the first place. But you, uh, you still, you go through the exercise, okay? But then if you have all these things over here that are pluses, and, and you choose to change the, uh, the polarity on that, you just make it a minus instead of a plus say, so you know what? That's not really a plus after all. That's really a minus. And just recategorize it, recategorize it. And then much of this falls under our own sovereignty, our own uh, volition is what we choose to reckon things as. How do you choose to reckon? And if you have to re-reckon, then you get the vocabulary of the verse right here. Okay? To re-reckon. That means you used to reckon one way, now you're reckoning a different way. And I think I think Paul spent three days of blindness doing this. I think, uh, you know, he had three days there waiting for Ananias to come and lay hands on him. I think Paul was doing an awful lot of re reckoning uh, because it was undeniable that Yahweh was Jesus whom he had been persecuting. And that, you know, for a, for a self righteous Pharisee that feared Yahweh or claimed to fear Yahweh, now he's left with a real conundrum. Because now he finds out that the Yahweh he claimed to fear was Jesus whom he had been persecuting. And so he had a whole lot of rethinking to do, re-reckoning to do. I believe this uh, was happened as soon as his three days of blindness it was completed or at the very latest during his Arabian sojourn. So when, how did all this re-reckoning take place? Acts nine 9.9 This is the Damascus Road event and um, the men who traveled with him stood speechless. And I love all of this. So he's he's traveling to Damascus, he's going to be harming the the, the Christians that he finds there. When suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, notice, there's, there's no faith anywhere in this chapter. He doesn't believe... But he wants to know, who are you, Lord? This is his only question. And it's clear that it's been bugging him for some time (laughs) leading up to this. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, believe in me and you shall be saved. He doesn't say, I think he was saved as a child. I think he had a childhood salvation uh, as an Old Testament believer. But being an Old Testament believer before the cross and then being uh, perverted into his arrogance and legalism when he went to seminary All right, (laughs) I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. So this isn't when he receives eternal life, this is though when he crosses from an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to be baptized into union with Jesus Christ. So the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. But we know that he was praying. We know because when the Lord goes to Ananias and says, I want you to go, I want you to go um, find a man from uh, Saul of Tarsus there on, on Straight Street... Uh, and the, the explanation comes in verse 12, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So part of his prayers, he received a vision from God. He gets to see a preview of Ananias walking in and giving him his sight back. So Ananias said, uh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> right? Well, what do you want to do? Make God a liar? God already sent him a vision and said you were the one that's going to come do this. Well, Lord, I've heard about this man. Maybe you haven't heard what I've heard, but let me tell you he's a bad guy. The Lord said, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. In that order, Paul would typically reverse it and go backwards in every town he went to. He'd go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. All right. Anyway, what was he doing in those three days of blindness? He was praying. He was receiving visions. I think he was re-reckoning a lot of his legalistic doctrine to take everything that he, he, may have had the whole Old Testament memorized. And then to take all that knowledge and start to cycle it through a filter of Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. He came. He died on a cross. He was, he ra- he was raised from the dead. And he had to take, he didn't have a written gospel, but he had all the stories of what the Sanhedrin had told him about Jesus. And now he's got to process everything. The very latest then he gets an Arabian sojourn that's spoken of in Galatians 1. This is where we'll have to stop. We'll pick up here on Sunday. He says... um, Verse 13, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. You know, some of his peers are still in grad school and he's already thriving in uh, full Pharisee ministry. "...but when God who had sent me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles and did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus." How long was he there? But well, we're told three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him fifteen days. So there was a 3-year time period that included both his Arabian sojourn and his local time there in Damascus before he ever made a, a reappearance in uh, in Jerusalem. You know, so a guy that went from Jerusalem to Damascus with arrest uh, warrants in his hand, uh took him a long time to come back, right? That's even longer than a Mueller report. He comes back 3 years later and and he has no no uh, arrested Christians. In fact he is a Christian now and he's, he's proclaiming Christ. So all of that process, all of that process, re-reckoning everything that used to be a plus to him, he's now calling it a minus and he says I've got to go get some more pluses now. My pluses are knowing Christ. Alright. Father thank you for tonight, thank you for your truth. Thank you for Saul of Tarsus and his re-reckoning. I pray that we all would re-reckon the things that need to be re-reckoned. That we would have a balanced ledger of of pluses and minuses that are in accordance with Your wisdom, with with Your plan. And I thank You for the blessings we have to study and to grow and uh, for all the ways that the book of Philippians just comes alive and ministers to us day by day. I thank You, Father, and I praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.